If you've been with us in the last couple of weeks here at Bonita, you have um, been part of one of the most unlikeliest Christmas sermon series ever as we've been studying a story in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. And I have to tell you, I've gotten probably the most comments on a Christmas series with this these uh, last couple of weeks. We began uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving, uh, and, um, and if you haven't been with us, you'll see why. Uh, it's been a strange uh, journey, a strange but wonderful journey uh, in the book of 2 Kings. So I want you to do that. I want you to turn there with me. If, if you're just joining us, you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, today is part three. We're finishing the story, and we're going to recap it really fast. Uh, if you have been with us, uh, this is just a chance to take more notes and make more comments. Uh, and I welcome your, your feedback. I've gotten a lot of feedback. Uh, not all of it great, but um, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Uh, and uh, let me just apologize in advance. The story that we've been reading is a difficult one to read, to talk about, and to process. And if you've got little ones uh, with you today, make sure you shield them from this conversation. If you feel that's the thing to do, or talk about it, help them process it. But we are in Second Kings chapter six. Uh, are you there? If you're there, say Amen. amen. All right, because here at Benita, we read the Word of God. That's what we do. We're in the house of God. We're going to read the Word of God. We're in Second Kings chapter six. We have been studying in this entire. Uh, uh, latter half of the year, the life of prophet Elisha. And this is an important story in his journey. So uh, I'm going to go through it really quick. Sometime later, verse 24, chapter uh, 6, 2 Kings, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, or Syria to you, mobilized his entire army, marched up, and laid siege to Samaria. Quick recap, there's two groups of God's children now. They're called the Israelites, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. We are in the north, and the capital of the kingdom of the Israelites is Samaria. And this was a fortified city. They had built walls. Inside lived the king and all the important people. And it was a, it was a city of commerce. A lot came through, was in and out. But the city itself had fortified walls and gates. And it was a place of refuge and a place of safety and a place of strength. But that a neighboring king and a neighboring kingdom who was constantly at war, usually out there in the skirmishes that would happen in the fields over, over crops and, and, um, and merchandise that was trafficking through. But on this particular occasion, the Bible tells us that the king, rather than just send a battalion or a group of people, he sends his entire army and they lay siege to the city. That means they surround the city and they cut it off from supplies. They want to starve them out, drive them out. And the Bible tells us, chapter uh, 6, verse 25, that there was a great famine in the city. A great famine that lasted so long that people were buying donkey heads for 80 pieces of silver and bird droppings to eat. The Bible tells us here, and, and we've read it in the last couple of weeks, in gruesome detail that when there is famine, people begin to lose their sense of not just common sense, but the sense of what's right, what's wrong. And the situation had gotten so bad inside the city gates, the people began to turn on one another. And you can read it for yourself. We read it the last couple of weeks, and everyone grimaces, and it's, it's, it's hard to read. But things were so bad inside the city that they turned on each other, and they did unspeakable things. And the Bible tells us, that essentially what should have been a place of refuge, a place of safety, had turned into a place of horrible nightmares. People were desperate, they were hungry, and they became violent with each other. 
Meanwhile, inside the city, along with all the starving people, was Elisha the prophet. And the Bible tells us that when the situation got so bad and they had turned on each other, mothers against children, and, 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 and people are eating the worst things and just it's just behaving at their worst, the king feels angry at God. And in verse 31, he directs his anger towards God's selected messenger, the prophet. The king, the person who should have helped people weather this difficult season, the king who by his own example should have taught them how to trust God, he's the one who turned on God, who blamed God. And instead, he turned his attention and his anger to the prophet. And, he, and the Bible tells us at the end of 2 Kings that he orders the prophet to be killed. He says, cut his head off. He's the problem. Meanwhile, the prophet is sitting in his house with some trusted uh, associates, probably some elders, and they are thinking about how God is going to deliver us. And while they're sitting, the Bible tells us in verse 32 that while Elisha's in his house, all this thing is happening and raging, and he's suffering from hunger too. Elisha realizes that someone is coming and he says, hold them at the door, because I know if we hold them at the door, the king will be hot on his heels. Second Kings chapter 7. And when the king arrived to see if, in fact, what he thought was the problem had been taken care of, Elisha says, hear now the word of the Lord. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, this is what we read. Hear now the word of the Lord. Second Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Elisha responds to difficult moments with the word of God. So if you're here today, you're just joining us, I want to catch you up on this. If you're living in a difficult season, as Crystal said, sometimes Christmas is not a time for, for joy. Sometimes it's a time for, for sadness and missing loved ones. If you're in a difficult season, hear now the word of the Lord. Turn your attention to what God has said. And Elisha says, this is God's word about this time tomorrow. I love that phrase, about this time tomorrow. It says, we're starving right now. We're, we're, we're turning on each other. But about this time tomorrow, God is going to deliver us. About this time tomorrow, a bag of the finest flour will sell for just one coin. And a, and a sack of barley will also be that inexpensive for just one coin. And the Bible tells us that, that the king's officer was right there. And he says, look, where you're saying is nonsense. Even if God were to open the floodgates of heaven, this couldn't happen. See, what's happening in our story, we are, it's being described, general sentiments that exist even in our, in our today's culture. Because we know what it's like to be under siege. See, I get the sense that for some of us, the year 2019 has been like that. Now, I don't know your story. You are, some of you are more familiar with mine. But for some of us, the year 2019 has been very difficult. It's like thing after thing has been encircling us, choking us, losing loved ones, enduring tragedy, broken relationships, and broken promises. And in those difficult moments, it's tough to believe that it can get better, that there's any hope and yet the prophet says to the people, I know it looks bleak, I know it looks awful, but God is on his way. About this time tomorrow, everything is going to change. I want you to ask yourself, do you think things can change? Do you believe change is possible? 
See, I think that the older that you get, the more cynical we become, right? I think when you're young, you're like, yes, the world, you know, I'm going to make a difference in the world. Do <laughs> you know that that's kind of what they ask now when you're making college applications? How are you going to change the world? That's, that's, that's the benchmark for Gen Zers. I'm not sure if millennials are up for it anymore, but Gen Zers like, we're going to change the world. But the older that you get, the older that you get, you start thinking, eh, right? Come on, you're like, eh, really, eh. The older you get, you start thinking, well, I guess this is just, it is what it is. You know, that's, that's like an old person phrase. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> we become more content with, with, well, I guess this is as far as we're going to go. And we become desensitized to the idea that change is possible, even that God might change things. And you know what we call that? That's a siege of your belief. That's the devil circling you and trying to choke out your hope. That's what's happening in the story. These are supposed to be God's people, the children of Israel. They're the ones who are supposed to be a, a city on a hill showing everyone else how to believe, how to trust. They're the ones who can claim a, a, a history where God has led them through the desert, parted the Red Seas, rained down bread from heaven, even meat when they ask for it. But they're in this moment, and they're like, it's not possible. Impossible. God cannot open the floodgates of heaven. And even if he did. And Elisha responds, and he says, you're going to see it with your own eyes, but you're not going to taste any of it. Oof. That's part one right there. In part one, we discover the, 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 the tragedy, the bleakness of the situation, and there's a prophet who says God is on his way. That's part one. At the same time, while all this turmoil and confusion is happening inside of the walls of what's supposed to be a safe place, just outside the walls, an unlikely group of people are thinking something totally different. <laughs> Look at this. Chapter 7, verse 3. This is where we were last week and we were with us. Outside the wall, there were four men, four lepers at the entrance of the city gate. And these four lepers were outside because by, by their cultural standards, they could not be inside. They would infect everyone else. So even there was a time of, of, of famine and siege and they were at war, these guys were still outcasts. And they were dying because they, 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 they relied on the generosity of people. But when the walls are, are closed and nobody has food, there's nobody going to make any handouts. And these four guys turned to each other and said, we're just going to die if we just sit here. If we go into the city, even if they let us in, there's no food there, we would die. And if we sit here, we die. Why don't we just go over to the enemy and throw ourselves at their mercy? And if they let us live, great. And if they don't, they kill us, we're going to die anyway. That's, that's realism for you, right? Hey, we're going to die here, inside, outside. Let's take a chance. And they take this risk, which is a fantastic thing to think about in this moment. The Bible tells us that when it got dark, meanwhile, inside, people are turning on each other, doing unspeakable things. And the prophet is saying, God is on his way. And outside of the city, these four guys decide to venture a little ways down the road. The Bible tells us that they waited for the cover of dark. Theologians think it's because maybe they didn't want to be seen by those inside the gates and, 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 and shamed from the wall. 
And so they wait for the cover of dark and decide to sneak off into the camp and ask for mercy. And the Bible tells us, we read this last week, that when they got there, they reached the edge of the camp. There was nobody there. The enemy had surrounded them for months, quite possibly a couple of years. But when they reached the edge of the camp, the thing that they had been fearing, the thing that had paralyzed them for, for months and years, there was no one there. The Bible says that when they reached the first tent, they found nobody, just their stuff. Because God, look at this, verse 6, because God had caused the enemy to hear the great sound of chariots and horses. And so the enemy said to each other, We're, they're going to attack us. Let's run for our lives. And they got up and they fled in the dark and they left their tents, their horses, their donkeys and all this stuff and they ran for their lives. See, inside of the gates, they couldn't hear any of this. All they could see was their problems, feel their hunger. All they could focus on was what they were missing, what they were angry about. Meanwhile, outside of the gates, God was causing a great heavenly army to drive out the enemy. I think that's so cool. I think it's so cool that even when you and I don't realize it, God is always working. Do you believe that? Okay, so turn to the person next to you and just tell them, God is always working. God is always working. You tell them. You tell them. Because the thing is, we may not believe that. Most of us are still inside and we're under siege and we just don't think that God can do something about our situation. But I'm here to tell you that the Word of God says nothing is impossible for God. Nothing, that's your big cue by the way, you guys didn't hear that? That's your big amen cue if you've ever gotten one. Nothing is impossible for God. That's what the people of God should say. But you're like, is it? See, that's what the siege has done to you. It has choked out your ability to hope. And though we're Christians and we're in here and this is Christmas, we're like, eh. You see? That's how bad it is. And why I think God is redirecting us to this story. God's army is at work. I love that idea, this picture, that there is an army unseen to us that is fighting our battle. During the night, while there was crying and hunger and pain and conflict and disbelief inside the walls, outside the walls, God was preparing a way. But these two things remained at a distance. God's provision and the hunger and pain of the people. And you know who crossed the border? Four lepers. <laughs> Unlikely people. This is what we read last week. And they get there to the other side. You know the story. They get there. The first thing they find is a tent, a bunch of food. And, of course, it's like Thanksgiving. Ah. I don't know how your Thanksgiving was. Ours was pretty cool, pretty subdued. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I've been to other people's Thanksgivings where there's not enough room in the plate, right? <laughs> and people say, oh, I've been saving up for this. Do you do that? Do you do that? You're like, oh, I haven't, I haven't eaten for days. And then you come and you ah. Well, they literally hadn't eaten for months or, or, or for a long time, uh, living on bird poop and scraps. So when they find all this stuff, the Bible tells us that they ate and they drank and they found clothes and silver and gold. And they said stuff and they went and hid them. And they returned to another tent, found the same thing. But fascinatingly in our story, although this was their moment, 
to finally turn the tables on all those Israelites who had call, called them outsiders and castoffs and rejects. Think about it. What would you have done if you were always an outsider, but suddenly you are given power because that's what stuff does for you. It gives you power. Would you have leveraged it against them? The Bible tells us that these four lepers don't do that. In fact, what they do is they say to each other, this isn't right. This is part two. These four guys take a risk, do the, do the unimaginable, something, something counterintuitive. They throw themselves at the mercy, come to find out God had already delivered. And now they stumble upon this, this, this loot, and, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and then suddenly they say to each other, wait a minute, this isn't right. What we are doing isn't right. Today is a day of good news. We should share this. This is where we ended last week in our conversation. They turned around and they said, we're fortunate here. We have food. We have water. They're starving. This isn't, we shouldn't keep this to ourselves. And the Bible tells us, look at this, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse uh, 10. So they run back to the city. We're now in part three. We run back to the city. And they yell out at the gate, hey, you're not going to believe this. It's still dark. Hey, you're not going to believe this. But the enemy is gone. There's food everywhere. There's food everywhere. And the Bible tells us they called out. They said, we went in. Nobody was there. Only their stuff. They left everything. And the gatekeepers heard the news. They didn't open the gates, but they shouted the news back. And they eventually got related and it reached the king. Verse 12. And the king got up in the middle of the night. He heard the news. What? The enemy's gone. They left everything. And the king said this. Ah, too good to be true. I'll tell you what. It's a trap. The king says, it's a trap. They know we're starving. They left and went to hide. They're thinking we're going to come out and they're going to get us. It's a trap. Can you imagine that? Like your people are dying. They're killing each other. And now provision is out there. And you're like, no. Too good to be true. Do you know anybody like that? Do you have somebody like that in your life? No matter how good life is to them, they're still like unhappy, distrusting, too good to be true. You anybody like that? I mean, don't look at them right now because they're probably sitting next to you. But um, my father, my father was like that. It didn't matter what, what good things were happening. He was always like disbelieving, distrusting. That's partly because it's probably how he grew up. But he would always look at a situation and just and not be satisfied, not be happy. It wasn't possible. In fact, he would always say, no, no, no. It's a trap. It's literally the life lesson he tried to teach me. People are going to take advantage of you. People are going to take advantage of you. It's the way my dad wanted to look at the world. That's how this, that's, this king is. He's saying, no, no, no. Even though, listen, right outside the gates, God has made a provision. There's still people inside of the gates who refuse to believe. Can you imagine that? Starving yourself because you refuse to believe that God can make a difference. The Bible tells us that even though the king had no sense, one of his officers did. Officer said, okay, king, we should at least check it out. Let's take a couple of the last remaining horses and send them out. And if they die out there, well, guess what? We're all going to die in here anyway. We're all doomed. Those are literally his words there in, in, um, 
Verse 13, we are doomed. All the Israelites were doomed. So why don't we at least find out what happened? And you know what happened? They sent these, these two chariots, and they went out. And they found not just the camp, not just the camp nearby that was abandoned, but it turns out that the enemy had run so fast for their lives because the army of God was chasing them that they began to throw off their clothes, leave their gold, anything they could, anything of value, they left strewn in the road. The Bible tells us they chased them, at least the remains of them, all the way to the Jordan, 20 miles 20 miles of the road littered with just stuff after stuff after God was providing to such a degree of abundance. So when they came back, they said, you're not going to believe there's clothing, equipment, food, everything they've left behind. Verse 16, look, look. So the people opened the gates and they went out and they plundered the camp. So in fact, there was a bag of flour, the finest flour sold for just a coin. And yes, an entire sack of barley for just a coin, exactly as God had promised. Yeah, that was your other cue. <laughs> and you know why we've been talking this story around Christmas? Because this is the story of redemption. This is the story of how God would save us. See, for centuries... Prior to the arrival of the baby Jesus, the Bible tells us that a Savior had been promised. For centuries, moms and dads would tell their children, one day, one day, a Messiah will come. A Savior would be born. Someone who's going to change our circumstances. But it was hard to believe and the Bible tells us that there was a time when, when the world was at its darkest. It was as if the world was under siege. There was a period of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament when no one interacted with God. And it was this in these darkest moments when faith had grown so dim that God chose to send his son to a tiny stable in the middle of nowhere. See, friends, God is always at work. And his promises are always in constant motion. You can't see it. We may not feel it. We are instead consumed, besieged by our fear, our anxiety, our pain and suffering. But there are armies of angels in chariots of fire fighting on our behalf. Preparing a way, unfolding a new day just as he promised. That's exactly what's going on in the story. You see, Elisha's life in ministry is about hope. It's a precursor. It's a type. It's a way of God showing us in a small way what he was going to do in a big way. Giving us an example that God would always do as he promised. And the same message that he was given to them and to those that waited in Bethlehem is the same message God has given to us. We have a promise too. You know that? Just like he came then, that he will come again. Do you believe that? You know, what else I love about this story is that God, in this story, chooses the most unlikely people to reveal his glory. He chose these four outcasts, these lepers, who were invisible to everybody else except to him. And without their act of courageous faith, without their willingness to take a risk and take a chance, God's provisions would have remained on the outside and God's people would have starved on the inside. But God chooses unlikely characters, just like he chose shepherds on a hill the night that Christ was born, just like he chose a teenage girl to entrust our entire dependent history on, a widower 
single father with a bunch of kids. And without their acts of faith, our world would be starved for God's blessing. See, I believe that God is always at work, and he wants to do something new, something amazing. And when he does, he chooses people that others do not. He sees what others cannot. And I believe that he sees us. See, there's been many times this year, 2019, if we could just talk honestly for just a second. There have been many times in this year where we've asked ourselves, does any of what we're doing matter? Does our church matter? Are we just a little tiny church here in the middle of this great big city and tiny speck in the story? And Is it even important? When we gather, when we meet, does it make a difference? I believe that it does. I believe it's worth it. I believe that we have good news to tell. And I believe that there are people starving for those news. And I believe it's worth fighting for. And I believe that God has chosen us, this tiny little church in the Bonita Valley. And I believe that if we band together and we courageously search out God's provisions are just on the other side. And will you join me then? Will you go all in once and for all? Or are you just going to stand at the city gates and watch and wait for someone else to make a step of faith and an act of courage? See, I think the Christmas season is our opportunity to take stock not only about how good God has been in the past, but about what we're, really, we're willing to risk for tomorrow. God risked it all. Jesus gave up everything to be here among us, to take a chance on a teenage girl and some shepherds in the middle of a stable. God took a great risk in trusting us and in our story in these lepers. But I believe that if we go all in, if we just begin to understand that there's no going back, there's no life on the other side. Listen, if we just stay inside of these gates, even though it feels safe, we're just going to choke ourselves out. We've got to venture. We've got to take a risk. Are you willing? I think there's great blessings on the other side of this new year. I think God wants to grow this church community. God wants to plant a, a blooming seed among us. But it's going to take some courage on our part. Are you with me? I believe it's worth it. When I see the lives of young people being changed, I know Pastor Caleb talks about it in that way. There's something going on. <laughs> I want to be a part of it. I believe it's important. It's not always easy. I know. Life is full of discouragement. I know. But I think it's worth it. And I think God calls us to it. And so in this Christmas season, as we prepare to celebrate these next two weeks, I want to challenge you to pray about your part, to pray about your role. Uh, Chip, can you help me pass these out again, please? Now, <clears throat> if you're not a member of our church, if you're just visiting us today, earmuffs, you can close your ears, that's fine. But it is our tradition here at Benita at the end of every year to take stock of God's generosity and to think how we might put our trust in him. See, we believe that we are generous because we serve a generous God. And every year at this time, we challenge ourselves to wrestle with God 
to recognize his generosity and to respond by making a sacrificial act of giving. So if you've been with us in our church community for the last uh, several weeks, you know that we have a new initiative called Generous at Benita, where we're inviting you to consider being a recurrent giver and to help us grow our ministry, to help us grow the reach of our ministry, the impact we can have, not just in our church, but outside of our church and our community. And we want to partner with, with you. We want you to partner with us. And so as you consider being generous by giving gifts to people and, and gifts to, to institutions, we want you to think about your church. And here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to take this envelope. You can read the instructions on it. And just pray on it. Just pray on it. What my family and I have discovered is that oftentimes making a sacrificial act to God is kind of like a key that unlocks a door that we've been waiting to open. See, when I turn my resources over to God, it makes me dependent on Him. And when I'm dependent on Him, that's when I have a chance to do something important. When I'm dependent on me, the truth is gonna, I'm going to mess that up. And so for us, my family and I, this act of sacrificial giving has always been a way of saying, I trust Him more than I trust myself. So what I want you to do is I want you to read the instructions there and, and pray on it. Put it on your refrigerator, put it on your mirror, pray on it, and ask God. I'm going to tell you what we do. My wife and I, we both ask God for a literal number, and it's usually a number that makes us wince because that's God saying, do you trust me or do you trust you? And when we have that number in agreement, that's the check that we write and we put in that envelope, and we're going to bring it together on the 28th, not on Christmas. We will not speak of this on Christmas. <laughs> So please come back next week and just enjoy the Christmas Sabbath. But for, if you're a member of our church, I want you to please partner with me in praying. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If God tells you don't give, don't give. That envelope will be a curse to us if it is a gift from an ungrateful heart. Keep that to yourself. But if God says give, then give and unlock this blessing, not just for yourself, but for us, for the ministry of our church for everything that we do for the lives of young people. Partner with us. So pray about it and then respond in faith. God chooses unlikely characters just like us. God chooses unlikely people just like our little church. Yes, we might be small, but in God's hands we can be mighty. That's what I'm praying for for the year 2020. So I believe that we have a promise that has been made to us, and we're going to keep proclaiming that promise here on our campus, especially in this Christmas season, that Jesus is our Messiah, our Savior. He came once, and He's going to come again. Amen? He did it once. He's going to do it again just the way that He's promised it. So we're going to proclaim that, and we're not going to get tired of it. We're going to sing it, we're going to shout it, because that's how good God is, and He is worthy and deserving of our praise. Would you please stand with us as we proclaim Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all.